The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. This episode is sponsored by UnityVillage.org. Songwriter Karen Drucker returns to Unity Village with A Woman's Time Out Retreat, September 19th to 22nd. Learn more at UnityVillage.org forward slash events calendar. Support for this show comes from the National Wellness Institute, committed to providing the tools, trainings, and resources to propel your career in wellness. Become a member today at nationalwellness.org. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today is Kelly Boyce. Kelly is a mindfulness meditation trainer with the United Nations Foundation. She hosts the Sounds True Mindfulness Monthly Program, and she's the author of The Blind Spot Effect, How to Stop Missing What's Right in Front of You. An essay adapted from the book appears in the July-August issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Kelly Boyce, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thanks. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. I'm very interested in mindfulness, and I think my entire life is a blind spot. So <laughs> we can we probably have a lot to talk about. So let's dive right in with a definition of blind spots. In the essay that's in the magazine, you define blind spots as, un, and I'm quoting here, unconscious impulses fueled by emotions and beliefs that create habit-building patterns in relationship to ourselves and others. So I'm going to read it one more time so people can follow this. But she says she defines, or you define blind spots as unconscious impulses fueled by emotions and beliefs that create habit-building patterns in relationship to ourselves and others. So unpack that for us, if you, if you would. Sure. Yeah, I, I look at blind spots as these, you can look at it like unconscious patterns of behavior uh, that you can catch over time if you were to see your own blind spot. And typically those patterns of behavior are fueled by unconsciously held emotions or um, core stories and beliefs about myself and the world around me. And what happens is our, our behavior is, our, our life is basically lived from this pattern. We have some kind of lens around us through which we view the world. And we're misguided in certain ways because we're not seeing clearly. And what happens is we tend to, to uh, for our blind spots, you know, be, um, act in patterned ways that we can catch that come from these more core kind of uh, beliefs and emotions that we're just not in touch with. They're just not conscious to us. That's the reason why um, they're guiding us so strongly. So my idea is that if we can get in touch with what's unconscious to us, we'll actually, you know, clear the noise in the signal and be able to act and move through the world, you know, in a more clear way. And, and mindfulness is a way of doing that. Is that right? Yeah. You know, I think when you slow down and you, and you, simply are present, you get to see what you've been missing that might be right smack dab in front of you, um, or you stop seeing what's not there. Uh, either way, I think mindfulness helps us because it, it soothes the judging mind 
and slows us down enough to start to catch these patterns in ourselves that uh, may be totally obvious to others, but that we're missing. Yeah. I, you know, I, I began meditation practice. I, I was in the Zen tradition for, for quite a while, and I began when I was 16. Yet it wasn't until I went into OA decades later that I realized that I was blind to my compulsivity around food. I mean, I knew I overate, but I had no idea I was actually a food addict. And it wasn't until I started working the steps that I began to uncover the emotions and beliefs you're talking about that I unconsciously or subconsciously maybe um, had around food. So here I am, I'm a meditator, and, and I love your, your analogy of this is the, you know, your blind spot is the elephant in the room and you just can't see it, the elephant in my life. So the elephant in my life, everyone else knew this, was compulsive overeating. I didn't see it, and yet I had been meditating forever. So what was I missing? Why, why didn't that help? Yeah, that's great. You know, and I talk in the book about practice, meditation practice, and insight. You know, there's one thing of, of um, noticing what's present. And then there's another thing with is gaining insight into the nature of what's arising in your experience. So I think that meditation practice can help us sort of gain greater ease in our lives and feel more in touch with ourselves, but there can still be a way. And this was true for me as well, that I totally was missing my own blind spots. And it wasn't until um, some patterns in my life surfaced strongly enough that I went, okay, I'm going to take a look here. I'm going to like double click on this and see what's underneath this. And that's where I think that the insight path of meditation can really help us kind of unearth and dig around and, and get into the shadow with ourselves in a way that where we're welcoming ourselves, you know, and we're not doing it, you know, to root out what is unconscious in us and make ourselves just be these light beings that walk around perfectly. Rather, it's more an idea of, can I just be more fully myself and have my own patterns more conscious to me so that then I'm engaging with life in a more full way and I'm able to um, not cause suffering for myself and for those around me from these unconscious patterns. So you, you mentioned mindfulness, and this is a central part to the, of the book and the, the essay in Spirituality and Health. What, and I'm sure that most of the people listening have some idea what you have in mind when you say mindfulness practice or mindfulness meditation, but just for those who don't, when, when you're using the word mindfulness uh, as regarding practice, what do you have in mind? Yeah, okay, so regarding practice, what I have in mind, so the way I define mindfulness or understand it for myself is a way of being with what is present and internally, externally, in my own life that welcomes uh, what's arising you know, without, without resistance, including resistance. It welcomes resistance as well. So it's kind of the full catastrophe living, as John Kabat-Zinn says. So for me, it's a way of being. But in order to uh, help people understand, including myself, how to um, develop this way of being or get in touch with the way of being that's actually natural to us, there are practices. And some of the practices I would associate with mindfulness are, you know, attention training, where you're able to focus on the breath or um, open awareness training, perhaps closer to Zen, where there isn't anything in particular that you're focusing on, um, but simply being, simply resting. 
Um, there are many other different types of practice, including compassion practice, guided practices, relaxation practices that, that go along with uh, mindfulness training. So when I refer to meditation or mindfulness practice, I mean, you know, this attention training, it could be compassion training or simple relaxation training of, of letting things be as they are and bringing a loving, generous heart to that. So you came to this through a specific school or teacher or lineage? I did. You know, I, I started uh, through actually the yoga path, Yoga Nidra. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's um, the, the Shavasana pose in yoga where you're just lying down. And it's a, it's a guided, uh, you could call it a relaxation practice where it's basically a body scan, but where you're also doing the deeper inquiry practices at the same time, such as um, the open awareness practice of allowing everything to arise, come and go within your experience, but also uh, bringing this kind of meditative insight inquiry into your meditation as well. Like, who am I? What am I? What the heck is this? <laughs> and uh, so for me, that was my entry into meditation. And I spent 10 years um, in that path and have really appreciated it because it brings the psychological piece in and to the meditative experience, which for me is very key. So this is really fascinating. And I think um, I want to spend a little more time on it than I anticipated, because I think that people, well, first of all, the term yoga nidra may not be something that, that everyone knows, but the, the, the Shavasana pose, you can explain that to us, but it's something that everybody can do as opposed to some of the other things. I studied Iyengar yoga for a long time until I got too fat to see my feet, let alone bend. Um, but, <laughs> but even I can do yoga nidra. So tell us about that and, and how that feeds into this, or how that supports this. Yeah, so actually I injured myself doing too much yoga and went to an Iyengar yoga class. And there was a teacher that taught us yoga nidra. So we all went into the Shavasana pose at the end, which is where you, it's corpse pose. You lie down on your mat at the end of yoga and you let go. So it's a practice for the ultimate letting go. Um, but it's uh, where you're just lying down. So your body, you're not sitting in meditation. So you're not holding on or holding in anything unnecessary if you really are able to relax and yoga nidra nidra means sleep so uh, it's the practice of being able to practice meditation while you're in a relaxed um, state that's kind of in between wakefulness and sleep where you're alert but relaxed at the same time and here in this when uh, we don't have such a doing mentality when we're just lying down on a mat. Um, and I've taught this a lot at, um, in a lot of prisons, you know, and you see all these kind of inmates laying down suddenly on mats and they look like everybody becomes a kindergartner. <laughs> and so in that way, so you're a kindergartner to your life when you're on the mat in that way. And, and there's something invitational about it that allows this kind of form of inquiry to uh, unfold in, in, a, in a generous, in a generous, hopefully way. If people want to learn to do the practice, can they, is there a place to go? Can they get it online? Are there videos or, yeah? Do you, do you there have? Are, you know, I trained with um, integrative restoration. So it's called IREST, I-R-E-S-T dot U-S is their website. And they train teachers around the world in, in their protocol. It's, they've done a lot of work with veterans. I worked with them for years. 
Um, so that's a good place. And then um, there's a lot of Yoga Nidra teachers on Simple Habit, which is an app that I am an advisor for and a teacher on. So they could also check that out. Great. So let, let me change uh, lanes here for a bit. You have this interesting term that you talk about, uh, attentional blink. And I, I was very fascinated by that. So tell us more about attentional blink. Well, it ends up that, surprise, surprise, we miss what's in the field of our vision. And, um, you know, we can we can look at a series of, of numbers. If, for instance, in this attentional blink studies, you, you look into a computer, a series of numbers, and perhaps there's a letter um, placed within this series of numbers. And then there's a second letter after that letter. And then it goes back to numbers. Well, most people, when they take this test, they miss the second letter because their brain is still kind of adjusting to the fact that they saw a letter and they're trying to remember all the things that they've seen. And uh, this is just something natural that we do. Our brain misses what's right in front of us for really good reasons. It's busy trying to do something else. Uh, what's interesting for me is that uh, this phenomenon is called attentional blink. And Richie Davidson out of the University of Miss, uh, West, Madison, Wisconsin, um, Wisconsin, Madison, he actually, uh, he tested meditators. And there are people that did a month-long retreat versus people who'd done kind of 20 minutes a day, newbies. And he tested them after a month and discovered that all of the trained meditators that went into this month-long retreat were able to catch that second letter. And in a way, meditation had helped them train to catch something in their field of vision. So my leap I make in the book is if you practice meditation, you can train yourself to catch other stuff too, not just a letter on a screen in your field of vision, but uh, an emotion, you know, a subtle emotion of disappointment before it turns into frustration and then anger, perhaps. Um, so or you can catch kind of a way of viewing the world that isn't accurate that might be leading you to cause conflict in your in your relationship or with your child. So that's um, for me finding out that meditators were better at catching or not blinking out on their experience made me go, hmm, I think this relates actually to our unconscious material in our lives. Yeah, well, if I'm following you right, and what you're saying is serious practice allows you to see the elephant. That's right. Uh, the, the second letter, but in this case, uh, you know, the elephant that you've been missing all this time. And, and I imagine, and you can correct me certainly, but I imagine that that's also part of seeing what you call the genuine self. So let me ask you, you, you have this great exercise. It's great because I also teach this exercise. <laughs> so I'm predisposed to what you're doing. But you have this exercise where you ask people to stand in front of a mirror and metaphorically strip away masks. The way I do it is I have people stand in front of a full-length mirror with uh, post-it notes, and then they write all their masks and their roles and you know, all their stories on you know, separate post-it notes, and they put them on the mirror reflection of themselves until the mirror is basically covered with all this stuff. And then I tell them to step to the side of the mirror so you can't see a reflection anymore. So all these post-it note things that they've been carrying, these labels, are left behind and for a second you're labelless. And that to me is sort of, you know, a metaphor for this genuine self. So I'm I'm interested in your understanding of this self. So for me, the self has no label. It has no, in a sense, it has no content. It's 
it's conscious, but content less. I'm wondering if, if we're talking about the same thing. I believe so. Yeah, that, that's a great way to describe it. And I like your um, activity. That's a nice way to do it because sometimes it can be harder when you're simply standing in front of a mirror to not see the labels. You know, I, I like the idea of putting labels onto the mirror because you're, you're actually physically watching how you label yourself. Right. So you're more than welcome to take that. <laughs> if you can use it, be my, be my guest. So my question is, and, and this is just a, a position, you know, a belief of mine, that your genuine self and my genuine self are actually the same self. Mm. That there's, there's just one infinite non-dual subjectivity. I don't know what you want to call it. Any word is going to be off. But that there's this one, you know, whether you want to call it Brahman or, you know, whatever it is, there's this one genuine self that manifests as infinite selves in the universe, human and, and otherwise. And that when I discover my, in, my genuine self, I'm actually, though you can't really put it that way in English, but I'm actually discovering your genuine self and the genuine self of my dog and the trees and the stones. And do you have that sense as well? Or is this more limited to, to the individual? Yeah, you know, I, I do have that sense as well. And I think it's an invitation for people to explore, you know, so less as for me, it's it's, um, it's definitely not, a, a you know, and I don't think it is for you either, but it's not a view to impose, but rather sort of an invitational question, right. which is, am I really all that I think I am? You know, I fuse with all these different ideas and beliefs about myself, but when I really let that fall away and get in touch with this deeper sense of a genuine self i make contact then um, with that with that uh, substance of life with that aliveness that that is uh beyond what i've thought yeah that yeah that's the al aliveness is a good word for it that in, in in judaism and jewish mysticism uh it's called that's the word that's used aliveness chiyut in hebrew but that's oh i uh, like that that's a very, a very good word to use. So we've only got a couple of minutes left, and I really uh, want you to share with us, sort of a way of closing the conversation out, this wonderful piece in the magazine called A Shortcut to Self-Compassion. So give us a sense of, of the connection between compassion and seeing blind spots, and then if you can give us just, I don't know, walk us through the meditation People can look for the details in the magazine, but just help us, encourage us to get started with that, because I was very taken with that. Sure. And is that the, the uh, mirror practice? or No, this is, this is um, bless my heart, I'm doing the best I know how, that one. Yeah, sure. Okay. That would be great. Okay, let's do that. So, yeah, for me, uh, looking at blind spots, must be, you know, related or has to come from a place of, of self-compassion uh, because otherwise it's just more of the same kind of self-harm. So a way to have a quick shortcut to that is I love saying, bless my heart. And so if you just take a moment and sit comfortably and think of some situation where you're judging yourself, uh, where you're kind of thinking that you should be different. And where you might have some confusion or uh, just something that has uh, brings some sense of um, disempowerment to you. So what I do is just place my hand on my heart and I do this regularly 
and say, oh, bless my heart. I'm doing the best I know how in this moment. And, you know, just this act, this movement of being warm, kind to myself allows me to let that sink in. And I may need to say, and bless their heart. They're doing the best they know how to. But first I have to do it here. And when I really know it here, this kind of level of compassion, then I can give it out. So feel free to just repeat that phrase, you know, bless my heart and then name it, whatever thing that you're, that you're working with and see if that helps. Yeah. I think coupling that with placing your hand on your heart, I think that's a, it's a very nice exercise. I don't know where you live, but um, I live California. So I live in Tennessee in Tennessee, we're always saying, bless your heart, but it's never a good thing. It's like when, when people are, are really trying to tell you you're an idiot, they go, well, bless your heart. You know, what they really mean, you are such a jerk. <laughs> so maybe for me, I have to, I have to find another phrase. Yeah, I got re- to reframe that. But it is, it is a great exercise and a great way to bring this short conversation time to a close. Our guest today was Kelly Boys. You can read an essay adapted from her book, The Blind Spot Effect, How to Stop Missing What's Right in Front of You, in the July-August issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. For more information on Kelly's work, please visit her website, kellyboys.org. Kelly, thank you so much for being with us on Essential Conversations. It's been a delight. Support for this show comes from the National Wellness Institute committed to providing the tools, training, and resources to propel your career in wellness. Become a member today at nationalwellness.org. Before we sign off, let me remind you that this year is the 20th anniversary of Spirituality and Health Magazine. As part of our celebration, I'm leading an interspiritual tour of the Holy Land. This is part tour, part pilgrimage, as we engage in contemplative practices linked to the various sites we will visit, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, and Baha'i. For more information, please visit us at spiritualityhealth.com backslash holyland hyphen with hyphen Rami. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Please log in to spiritualityhealth.com to subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats and to download the iTunes app for this podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker, and our program coordinator and executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.